All righty, last week we talked about, uh, what did we talk about last week? 30 years war, and then we also talked about rationalism. All right, any questions about the 30 years war? Any clarification about rationalism? How many of you here walked out of here with a headache after learning about rationalism? All right, good, because I walked out of here with a headache having taught it. Philosophy is not something I thoroughly enjoy, but it is fairly interesting when you look at it and how it affects history how the thought of humans affects history. All right, so tonight we're going to pick up on those same themes. We're going to look at orthodoxy, we're going to look at spiritualism, and we're going to look at pietism. These are all three movements, along with rationalism, of changes from the 17th and 18th century coming straight out of the Reformation. All right, so we're going to look at basically how the Reformation affects all those other thought processes. Okay? All right? Before we get going, any questions, any concerns, any comments? Going once? Nope, okay, good. Here we go. Let's look at the Puritans first. There are a bunch of Puritans. The one on the far left is Jonathan Edwards. Uh, the guy in the middle with the mustache. Anybody know who that is? What if I said John Bunyan? Who's John Bunyan? He wrote a really, say it, Thank you. Right? Wrote Pilgrim's Progress. His brother, Paul Bunyan. <laughs> and Babe the Blue Ox lived in North America. All right? Okay. Uh, the guy here in the second to the right is uh, Richard Baxter. Uh, the guy, that guy right there. The one on the far right is uh, Siebes. Right? And the guy in the middle, or the guy on the far, or second to the left, I don't know who that is, and that's okay. All right? But the Puritans will get to know, right? All right, so in 1603, Elizabeth I dies sans heir. So no heirs for Elizabeth I. She was called the Virgin Queen, not because of her purity, but because she never got married. All right? Then they named Virginia after her uh, with the founding of Jamestown Colony in 1607. 1608, right? But instead, James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England and unifies the English and the Scottish crowns, right? Anybody remember who James's mother was? Mary Stuart. What happened to Mary Stuart, Queen of the Scots? They took her head off. Elizabeth had her head taken off, right? Okay. The transition between the throne, uh, the tr transition of the thrones went fairly smoothly. Sometimes there's a power struggle. This time there really wasn't, uh, which was great, right? Uh, but James soon finds himself in trouble with some Protestants who didn't think that the Reformation during Elizabeth went as far as it should have, right? So English Calvinists, with James on the throne, now feels like the time to move and to further the Reformation is, uh, is ripe. So they, they try to take advantage of it. These Protestants, these English Calvinists, who wanted to continue the Reformation are called Puritans. And it's difficult to really categorize the Puritans because there's no one strict movement within Puritanism. Right? But they can all agree on one thing, that they want to purify, hence the name Puritans, purify the Church of England, right? 
So what they all agreed on is that the Church of England needed to return to biblical religion, as they said. They opposed the use of the cross, so the procession of the cross, they opposed that. They opposed ornate priestly garments. They opposed having the altar right here for communion. So what they said was instead of the altar, there should be a table, a table to the side, right? Nothing should stand in the way of the preacher who was in his lectern. And have you ever seen pictures of uh, Westminster Cathedral, right? They climb up to a lectern, right? That's because the word of God is to go down onto the people. The people never rise up to the word of God. You let the word of God come down to you, right? Nothing should stand in the way of that lectern. So move the altar to the side. Also, the altar was reminiscent of Rome because the Mass was always a re-crucifying of Christ during the Mass. So get rid of the altar, put a table by the side, right? Just a plain, ornate table, unornate table, excuse me. They also called for a sober life. Now, this does not mean in any way, shape, or form they were uh, teetotalers, right? What they said was, They mean drunkenness, right? Because they all drank moderately because the water was awful. Cholera is a bad thing, so I've been told. So they didn't. And another thing, the last thing that they were all agreeing upon was that they were all adamantly opposed to the licentiousness of James I's court. Right? James I, known for uh, some uh, wild behavior, Uh, He was accused of being a homosexual, uh, and so there was a lot of things within his court that the Puritans were like, you know, you can't be the defender of the faith and the head of the Church of England if you live wild, throw lavish parties, accused of homosexuality, like to dress up in fancy, I mean, he had like super ornate clothes, right? So he spent money lavishly, and like, you can't do that, right? So that was the things they agreed on. The things they disagreed on was church polity. Church polity is just how the churches should be run, how they should be governed, right? Politics, polity, right? Many Puritans were opposed to bishops, right? They believed that the episcopacy, that's the having a bishop uh, in their time, was not found anywhere in Scripture. So the idea of having an archbishop of Canterbury, they didn't like because... Scripture doesn't define any types of things of archbishops, right? Even though it uses the words like presbyter or episcopus in the Greek, right? Which is where we get the word episcopacy and bishop, right? The, the Latin form of episcopus is episcopus with a B. English then took the E off of it and just called them bishops, okay? That's where we get the word bishop from. Some Puritans argued that Scripture allowed for several forms of polity. So you could have congregationalism, right, which is what the pilgrims were, congregationalists. That's, right, the congregation has a say. It's kind of a form of democracy. Uh, let's see what else. And others argued that the church should be ruled by presbyters, right, elders, elder board, like we have here at Exodus. Because right, that was more New Testament because the word Episcopus also means presbyter, right? It means elder. 
That's where we get the word Presbyterians from. And then others argued that congregations should not be joined together under a union. They should all be independent. And they called those Puritans the independents. Imagine that, right? And then within independence, there were those who believed in believer's baptism. And they called them the Baptists. And so where the Southern Baptists and the North American Baptists come from, mainly are puritanical roots. I don't use the term puritanical in a negative form. That's just the adjectival form of the word. Right? So they are Puritan. Right? What they all could also agree on, at least theologically, is that they were Calvinists. Some of them held on to Zwinglian views of the sacraments, mainly believer's baptism. Right? Uh, a lot of them uh, held on to Calvin's view of the, of, uh, the Lord's Supper, so his spiritual presence. And that morphed, once it got into North America, into a memorial view. Right? Do this in remembrance of me, so you're supposed to sit there and think of your sins, as opposed to actually, throughout history and in a spiritual sense, eat communion with those who have gone on before and who will go on before you uh, or after you in the spiritual realm. Does that make sense? Okay. And then others, the more radicalized ones became, uh, had a little bit more Anabaptist theology in them. They became uh, strict pacifists. Uh, they refused to take oaths. They refused military service of any type. Right? So what did we do with those? Persecuted them. That's right. You know, because Puritans persecuted Puritans. Right? The Church of England persecuted the Puritans. Right? They were called dissenters because they dissented against the, uh, the social norms Right? How society functioned, you know, well, I'm going to complain about everything. So the Church of England just decided to call them dissenters. And actually other Puritans decided to call them dissenters as well. We'll look at another form of dissenters when we look at the Quakers here in a few minutes. Okay. Puritans were also afraid that Elizabeth's Via Medea, that middle road that she discovers... Right, or that she has her, uh, her church develop, the Via Medea, uh, would lead back to Rome. Right? They don't want England going back to the popish religion, as they would call it. Uh, so they were afraid of that as well. Right? Uh, James I doesn't really do anything to really endear himself to the Puritans. Mainly he persecutes them. Why? Because they're not really forming or conforming to the Church of England. They're wanting to argue other things. They're wanting to tell him how to live, right? If somebody told you how to live, you would be a little bit of a dissenter as well, right? So what does he do? He imprisons them. He executes them. He exiles them to the European continent, and he exiles them to this new place called the English colonies, right? Because, you know, Sending them across the English Channel is great, but they can still make their way on, back onto England. But you send them 5,500 miles away onto this new world, and you don't have to see them probably ever again. Uh, he sometimes exiled them uh, by granting them charters uh, for, uh, for colonies, much like the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, when we look at uh, next week when we look at the Pilgrims and the Puritans that then formed the Massachusetts colonies and the New England colonies. Okay? 
All right. So, you know, imprisonment, execution, torture, exile to the continents, exile to the colonies. James doesn't really do anything uh, to uh, make them love him, except for one thing they can agree on. And that's in 1611, they all sit down and say, hey, you know what, we need a new version of the English Bible, one that's more up-to-date in language. And so, with a group of about 120 scholars, uh, the Crown and the Church of England, re, uh, re -go they go through the, uh, the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew and the Aramaic, Aramaic Old Testament, and they create a new version of the English Bible, and we call it the King Version, right? The King James Version, or the Authorized Translation. The Authorized Translations mean that it was authorized by the crown. Right? If it was not an authorized version, you could end up either imprisoned, executed, or exiled to the continent or to the colonies. So, Catholics that were still in England, and there were, because of Elizabeth's ability, uh, Elizabeth's via Medea, and then later uh, her tolerance uh, towards the end of her reign, there were some Catholics that were still left in England. Right? They don't use the King James Version. At the time, they were still using the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is not the authorized version. So if you were caught with a Latin Vulgate in your house, guess what happened to you? Well, you were either imprisoned, executed, or exiled. Right? So there was a lot of political weight to the authorized version. Right? Also, the King James Version does the exact same thing that Martin Luther's version of the Bible does to the English language. It codifies it. When you, when you look at Jacobian, that's what they call James's era, uh, Jacobus is Latin for James. Right? So the Jacobian era of England, uh, James, Charles, Charles, James, when you look at all of that stuff, uh, you'll see multiple spellings for the same word. Right? The codification wasn't necessarily in the spelling. That comes, actually, that comes after the American Revolution. Right? But the codification is more of like the grammar and the syntax. So they're still trying to work out a lot of uh, spelling. Um, Noah Webster in his uh, dictionary helped to codify not only American English, but also English English, uh, because we wanted to spell it one way and they wanted to spell it the other, which is one reason why in English, in the Queen's English, color has a U in it, and color does not have a U in it, U in it here in American English. Right? It's another way of telling the crown to go jump off a cliff. Right? Okay? Righty? All right. The rest of James's reign right, saw growing tension between, between the crown and the parliament. Uh, many Puritans having seats in the House of Commons, uh, mainly because James always wanted to rule as an absolute monarch. Right? Power belonged not in parliament, but in the hands of the king. Right? And parliament goes, <laughs> little do you know anything about our history, James. You may be Scottish, and you may hate us though we have something called the Magna Carta that was signed on the 15th of June, 1215, and you have only the power that the parliament gives you. Not the people, but parliament, right? And the barons and the, uh, all the other lo lesser nobility, right? But he dies. 
He dies in 1624, right? And his son, Charles I, becomes king. And Charles, like his father, wants to rule absolutely. And like his father, he doesn't endear himself to the Puritans. Once again, he increases persecution on them. He throws more in prison. It's during the time of Charles I's reign that uh, John Bunyan is thrown in prison. And it's during that time that he writes Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, let's see what else. All right, he ex- exiles more to the colonies and the New World, to the continent. And then to pour gasoline on this fire some more, Charles I marries a sister of Louis XIII of France. She's Catholic. The Protestant king of England marries a Catholic sister of Louis XIII. All right. She wants him to then convert to Catholicism. And this is the time where Parliament goes, nope. There's some other uh, political and social aspects that are going on, but let's just say that uh, England, or many of the Puritans, see this as another way of England wanting to return to Rome. The king marries a Catholic woman, Oh, he's trying to turn England back to Rome. And long story short, Charles I and Parliament, especially the House of Commons, battle it out for the next 25 years. And to the point where the king finally bursts into the House of Commons. That is a no-no. And on the opening of Parliament today, they they celebrate that. Have you heard of uh, the celebration of the Black Rod? Anybody? All right. You need to go on YouTube, or the next time Parliament opens, and I think it's in May or June, they always have this celebration. It dates back to Charles I's reign. There is a single officer of Parliament called the Black Rod. That is his name. That is his title. And for however many years he decides to serve, he is always known as the Black Rod. And he dresses in black, and he carries a black rod. When the king summons the House of Commons... The black rod goes before from the House of Lords to the House of Commons, and he goes and he bangs on Parliament's door. And you can see it on the door that there, over the 400 years that this has been going on, there is an indentation in the door from where he takes his stick and he bangs on it. And he goes, in the name of the king, the House of Commons is summoned to the Lord's chamber. It's the only time that the House of Commons is summoned to the Lord's chamber. Right? And what does the House of Commons do? They open the door, they look at him, and then they slam it in his face as hard as he can. And that is to tell the king, you have no jurisdiction in the House of Commons. You may think you do, but you don't. And so finally they open it up, and the black rod walks down that main aisle that's separated by two sword lengths, because you can't have dueling in the House of Commons. So he walks down it, and they all give him the evil eye. Because basically what they're doing is saying, you think you have the power, but you don't. The power rests in the hands of Parliament. And then they lead everybody to the House of Lords. House of Lords, the Queen comes in, and she gives her, uh, her speech that says, this is how I want the government to function throughout the year. And then the House of Commons goes back and laughs hysterically at the speech while the Prime Minister tries to say, hey, this is a great idea. 
That is the history of the, the, the black robe. Right? But it dates back to Charles I because he walks into, into the House of the Lords and they go, what in the name of all that is holy are you doing here? Right? So he disbands Parliament for several years as part of that 25 years of tension. Right? They've had enough. So what do they do? They go to war. And this is called the English Civil War. Right? So the English Civil War, the Roundheads versus the Cavaliers. Right? Oliver Cromwell, right? well, who was for the most part a pretty much unknown entity at this time, leads the parliament, parliamentary troops. He ends up being a really great general. Right? And he defeats the loyalist troops, those loyal to the crown of Charles I. Right? On the 30th of January of 1649, Charles I is executed for treason. Not treason to England, treason to Parliament. Right? He's, not, you know, he's not executed for being treasonous to the entire people group. He's, he's executed for treason against the form of government. Right? And it's the first time in modern uh, European history that a king is executed by his own people. The next one and the last one will be Louis the Sixteenth in 1793. Right? So Charles I is dead. Oliver Cromwell becomes the Lord Protectorate of England. Basically, he's king for nine years, but he doesn't take the name king. He just is a dictator for the most part. Right? Puritanism thrives. Right, you get, nobody's getting persecuted except for the Catholics still, so that's good news. Right? Uh, on his deathbed, Oliver says, hey, I want my son Richard to be my successor. Uh, but as always, it tends to be the case, the son is never quite like the father in conviction. Richard, nice guy, not very powerful in his ruling abilities. And within a year, Parliament goes, hey, I tell you what, we'll give you a ton of money if you just step down for the love of Pete. And Richard, not being an idiot, goes, okay. All right. So what do they do? They restore the crown. It's called the Restoration. Aren't these funny names? These are great names, right? right? English Civil War. Well, this is a civil war. They restore the crown. It's called the Restoration. And they asked Charles II to be his successor to his father's throne. So it's James I, Charles I, Charles II. Right. Well, Charles II is a fairly ineffective king, and he dies in 1685. But on his deathbed, he declares himself Catholic. That's a problem. His son is James II. So James, Charles, Charles, James. Right, James I, Charles I, Charles II, James II. James II is also James VII of Scotland. All right? Okay? Everybody following? Just remember James, Charles, Charles, James. All right? Okay? All right. Anybody ever seen here seen King Ralph? All right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so he's sitting in the middle. He's like, he's bringing up the, like, this treasonous plot to some... Lord, dude, I can't remember what his name is. And 
the guy goes, under whose authority? And he goes, James, Charles, Charles, James. Right? That's how I always remember that. Right? So he's like, under, under the something, something act of James, Charles, Charles. And then he names the, the king, whoever it was. Right? But anyway, right? Uh, James II is Catholic. That's a problem for a Protestant country. So what do they do? The good old English rebel. Right? Parliament invites William, the Prince of Orange, out of Holland, or the Low Countries, and his wife, Mary, to become co-rulers. Mary was the daughter of Charles I. So she has a direct line to the throne. Right? So Parliament goes, who's the next available in line? Who's closest? And they go, remember Mary? She's over in Holland. She's married to William of Orange. And they're like, great. Not a big fan of the Dutch, but we'll bring him over because at least he's a Calvinistic Protestant. All right? So they bring him over. Right? He becomes William III. She becomes Mary II. Awesome. The next William will be in William IV in the 1800s. He dies, and then Victoria becomes queen. All right? We don't have a William yet. There is one in the lineage now. Right? William. Uh, hopefully he becomes king other than his father, but that's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <All right>? <laughs> <laughs> so William, William and Mary come over. They call it the Glorious Revolution. It's also called the Bloodless Revolution because zero shots are fired, all right, which is great news for everybody. All right? So William comes over. Uh, Mary comes over. They now have Protestants on the throne. And then towards the end of their reign in 1701, England passes a law that remains in effect today. It is called the Act of Settlement 1701 that says only a Protestant can sit on the throne of England. So anytime there's a king or queen on the throne of England, you can rest assured, I know you worry about this, but please rest assured that they are all Protestants. All right? And so from going forward, they will always be Protestants. All right? But here's how the Puritan ethos lingers after the Restoration. You have great authors like John Milton. John Milton wrote a long poem and that long poem is called Paradise Lost. Okay? A lot of our understandings of what like, maybe Satan looks like, he wrote. Crazy, huh? Yeah, that was all up, made up in his mind. Has not, there's, there's no real scripture to it. He's just trying to do poetic license. All right? okay? And that's fine. All right? John Bunyan and his Pilgrim's Progress, as we've already discussed. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, please do. And then when you're done with that, read C.S. Lewis' Pilgrim Digress. Because, or Regress, I should say. Thank you. Pilgrim's Regress. Because he actually says, well, you know, I'm not as awesome as I think I am. So it's actually a regression. Right? But uh, we also have men like Richard Baxter, John Owens, Richard Sibbs. These are powerful preachers whose written works remain with us today and should be read. And then we also have the Valley of Vision, which are a book of Puritan prayers. The Puritans did not like to write down their prayers. They were more spontaneous. They didn't like the strict liturgy of the Church of England, so they didn't tend to write down their prayers. The irony is they've produced one of the best prayer books that the world has ever known. Right? Okay? And that's what I read out of today about the Holy Spirit. 
And then the Puritan ethos also has a profound effect on the founding of this nation uh, when it's a colony, uh, in the colonies. And we'll get into that next week when we look at uh, Winthrop and the city on the hill. All right. Questions? Yes, sir. Protestants actually comes from uh, a time in Germany. There's a, a, a diet who uh, the Catholics and the Protestants are going at it again in Germany, and they meet a diet. It's not the diet of Worms. I can't remember which. It's in my notes. I'll look it up later. No. Yes, but not until after the 1530s. The Protestant name, mainly for the, until then, they were just called heretics, Because right? the Catholics were like, oh, they're a bunch of heretics. We don't know what to call them else other than heretics. Right? They were called Protestants because they finally protested against the Catholics uh, in persecution. Right? And then the irony is that in that same diet that they were first called Protestants, uh, they said, hey, you know what we should do? Let's persecute the Anabaptists. And the Catholics were like, man, that's a great idea. We could team up on them. Right? We can give them that third baptism. We'll drown them all they want to. Right? Or we'll burn them at the stake. Right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah. They protested against being persecuted. And so they were called Protestants, and in that same discussion, they're like, hey, let's persecute the Anabaptists. Right. So from then forward, they're called Protestants. So this is the 1530s. Okay. Yep, good question. Yes, ma'am? Correct. The Puritans wanted to purify the Church of England. They were, they were Anglicans in that form, meaning they belonged to the Church of England. They were just like, uh, just a group in it, a sect in it. They were like, you know what, we, we get tired of seeing, you know, the procession of the cross. We get tired of the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury lives in a very well, huge house, you know. Uh, so their idea was to purify it even further, to reform it even further, uh, to where they get down to what they called just strict biblical religion, right? And that is, all you need is the Bible, some prayer time, and Jesus, and that's it. Yep. Anna? No, there is, there is something psychological about being called the name, right? So if, you, if you're called a Puritan, or even within the Puritans, if you're called a Baptist, all of a sudden you want to start hanging out with people who have that similar mindset, right? So what you do, and then plus you're called the dissenter on top of that, coming down from the hierarchy, the king, 
right? So there's, a, there's something where they're like, all right, well, if you want to call me that, I'll just break away. So they, they begin to break away from the church, right? So they're like, oh, I'm, I'm an independent. I'm an independent Baptist, right? There's no Southern Baptist. There's no North American Baptist at this time. That's purely a North American and a, uh, a United States phenomenon. Uh, but uh, what happens is with the name calling and the, you know, if you're going to continue to persecute me, throw me in prison and execute me, stuff like that, we'll just pull away and, and try to do our own little thing, have a house church and go from there. Lots of denominations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yep. Nope. Nope. And the Menon- the Mennonites have a strict Reformation history. All right. They are not. They're not coming out of any type. They their history goes from Menno Simons all the way through to today. All right. They are not. They have nothing to do with uh, England. They have nothing to do with. France or Spain or Italy, they're still, they're still them. And you'll find them in Germany and the lowlands, so uh, Denmark and, uh, excuse me, uh, Holland and Belgium. So they tend to stay up into the northern, the northwestern aspect of England. pacifists they just they just absorb their some of their theology you got you got to remember that they're that the the books and the writings are still being around they just begin to absorb other theology as they read it we do the same thing today how many in here have always been reformed <laughs> with a capital r right how many in here have always been baptist How many in here were Lutheran? <laughs> How many in here were raised Catholic? Nobody? You were? Okay. All right. I was, I was going to be amazed. There's nobody in this room that was raised Catholic. All right. So as you see, right, you, you get exposed to other things, and all of a sudden you, you begin to shift. I mean, I was raised Baptist my entire life from basically conception to now, Right, but it's just like I would consider myself reformed because of the influence of Dr. Roger Roberts, my pastor during high school, because he said, "Here's Augustine, go read him." And I was like, "Oh, this is a whole lot different than the Baptist stuff that I've been taught." Right? That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Hope everything's all right. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, let's get into yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. If you have not read Pilgrim's Regress, I have a copy of it, and I encourage you to go get one also. But I will let you borrow it. I didn't either until. I did my author project in senior year English on C.S. Lewis, and his writings changed my life immensely. The Absolution of Man, uh, God in the Dock, uh, 
on grief, grief observed was a huge one after my mother's death. He's a good guy to read. So, of course, Chronicles of Narnia. You can never go wrong with them. Uh, yeah. So, Voyage of the Dawn Treader has one of the best examples of the gospel, uh, where uh, Eustace is uh, uh, caught. They're caught on Dragon Island, and he puts on or goes after the dragon's gold. And what does he do? He turns into the dragon, and he can't get this bracelet off of his arm because he's because the scales of the dragon keep it on there, and, and as he grows more and more into a dragon, the gold digs into his arm and it hurts, right? So he's like, I've tried everything, you know, in good old English, Queen's English, he uses the term, it hurt like Billy-O, whatever that means, right? Right, hurt real bad, right? Uh, so uh, he's back to his human form, and he's talking to Edmund and Lucy, and Eustace is their cousin, so he's talking to Edmund and Lucy, and he goes, I don't know if I dreamed it or not. And they're like, well, obviously you're back to human form, so something happened. Right? And so he describes this vision that he has, and this giant lion comes up, and he's like, well, what do you, what do you want of me? And he's like, I'm sitting there trying to scratch all these scales off, and they'll, they'll come off, but then as soon as they do, I look back, and they're all even gnarlier and awful, more awful than before. And so he, he looks at the, at the lion, and with tears in his eyes, he goes, I don't know what to do. And the lion looks at him, and he goes, you have to let me do it. And then he takes his claws, and he digs them in deep, and he goes, it hurt. It hurt real bad. But then the skin fell off, and the gnarliness of the dragon went away, and I was given new clothes and I shone. Right? What an amazing example of the power of the gospel in that book. That's a children's book. Right? Read it to your children. Read it yearly to your children, that entire series. And if you have not, shame on you. It hurt like a Billy O. Billy O. B-I-L-L-Y space O-H. So read it. As an adult, read it. Okay? It's an amazing, amazing series. But anyway, let's get to the Lutherans. Ready? Luther dies in 1546. His second in command, Philip Melanchthon, becomes leader. All right? And while holding fast to most of Luther's beliefs, Lutheran... Melanchthon disagree on the use of reason within the church. Luther calls reason dirty reason. That's a direct quote, dirty reason. All right, but that doesn't mean that Luther thinks that use of reason is bad. He says that reason is soiled by sin and has to be used cautiously, having been transformed by the light of the gospel. Melanchthon is a humanist, and during Luther and Erasmus's disagreements, Melanchthon is the one that keeps a relationship with Erasmus because Melanchthon is a lot more of a gracious man than Luther is, right? Uh, Melanchthon was not prone to using harsh words to describe the Pope. Melanchthon was not, was not prone to using harsh words to describe other Protestant theologians. Ask me afterwards what those 
words are, I'll be happy to tell you what they are. Right? Earmuffs, yeah. Don't, don't be around small children. Right? Uh, Melanchthon uh, believes that reason was not as fallen as Luther believed. And uh, he was actually the first person to write a Lutheran systematic theology. It's called the loci theologici, or the locus, or the, the point of theology. Right? So loci, L-O-C-I, theologici, theologic with an I-C-E, or with an I-C-I, excuse me. All right? And it's a small work. It's not a very big work. Right? So here's what happened. Luther dies. Melanchthon's in charge. You get two parties that develop. One's called the Philippists, after Philip Melanchthon. They follow Philip. And then another group called the Strict Lutherans, who say, if Martin didn't say it, I believe in it. Right? So you get two parties, the Philippists and the Strict Lutherans. Right? Now, the, the problem with, between these two actually begins with what they call an interim. Don't worry about these words. It happens at Augsburg. Everything happens at Augsburg with this group. Right, so you have the Augsburg Confession, then you have the Augsburg Interim, right, which was basically a compromise between Lutherans and Catholics. But anyway, the strict Lutherans accuse the Philippists of giving too much credit to human participation in salvation. Right, so the strict Lutherans say, hey, Philippists, you think that humans can save you, or your human reason can save you. That's not at all what Philip said. He just says that now that you're saved, go do good works because it at least shows that you're saved. Right, so he's reading the book of James and saying, oh yeah, there's two sides of this coin, justification and sanctification. Sanctification requires works because it shows that you have been justified before a holy God. Right? And we're all like, why is that? Nothing wrong sounding with that. Right? Anybody have a problem with that? You better not. Okay, good. Right? Okay? Right? All right, and there are other peripheral things that cause a whole bunch of division too. All right, but finally, they all meet in 1577 at the Formula of Concord. Right, so basically, Concord just means to live in peace with each other, and the formula is here all the stuff we're going to write down about it. Okay? Right? The Concord takes middle ground on most of the issues, uh, but for communion, the strict, the strict Lutherans win that debate, uh, and they hold to a, a uh, they hold to a traditional understanding of Luther, Luther's consubstantiation. So within communion, the presence of Christ is in, on, around, underneath, all the way through. It's a mystery. That's basically what Luther says, right? And they're like, hey, we like that idea. It's about as ambiguous as possibly could be, but at least it's not transubstantiation, nor is it, heaven forbid, that memorial garbage that Zwingli's talking about. And it doesn't go any way out mystical like uh, Calvin's spiritual presence, and they're all like, got it, all right, okay, so they follow the formula of Concord, all right, the pursuing generations, right, sought to coordinate, that is interweave, all of the teachings of Luther and Melanchthon, and the leading theologian to do that is a guy named Martin Chemnitz, uh, don't worry about his spelling, Right? But what evolves out of his teaching is what we call Protestant scholasticism. That's a word. Those are, that's a phrase to write down. Protestant scholasticism. Right? Protestant scholasticism basically says that it emphasizes systematic thought right? while trying to uphold orthodoxy. The theology that develops out of it is found out of universities and not 
churches. That's why it's called scholasticism, because it comes from schools, universities, mainly the University of Leipzig, and the University of Wittenberg, whose university was the University of Wittenberg, of Wittenberg but Luther's. That's where Luther worked. Right? But the problem with it is it's not born out of the life of the church. It's born out of, uh, which was then born out of preaching for the souls. It's born out of strict, cold academics. That's a problem because all of a sudden everything just becomes more cerebral as opposed to actually life-giving. And it dominates Lutheran, read Germanic. It dominates Lutheran thought, Germanic thought, for 200 years. Protestant scholasticism dominates Lutheran Germanic thought for 200 years. Okay? Right? It is one of the things that Immanuel Kant rejects. Because Immanuel Kant, when you read his stuff, he's not against the church. He's against lifeless church, to be honest. And by this time, the Germanic Lutheran church is lifeless. Because all it is is a bunch of, like, theological debates. There's no life-giving gospel to it. It's all cold, hard academics. And so that by 1750, German theology is German theology. It's cold, it's hard, it's Germanic. There's no life to it. Okay? Alrighty? Any questions so far? Just know this. After Martin passes... Philip Melanchthon takes up the mantle of leadership. They argue about whether or not they should go more humanist, like Melanchthon does, or they should stick to strict Luther teachings. And out of that debate grows out Protestant scholasticism. And from Protestant scholasticism, you get cold, systematic theology. There's nothing wrong with systematic theology until it becomes cold and distant and lifeless. Okay? But you have to know your systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Nope. Not a one. They all come out of Oxford and Cambridge, and those were founded in the 1250s. Yep. Yep. So the theologians of these Protestant scholasticisms, they wrote vast systematic theology. I mean volumes. There's this one theologian who, his first one was two volumes. By the time he got to his second edition, it was 23. And that was within 15 years of his first publication. And their works can be compared to the summas of Thomas Aquinas, that famous scholastic theologian of the 12th and 14th centuries. So you had Thomas Aquinas, you had... uh, Dun Scotus, and you had others, right? Who they, they took Aristotle, and they tried to explain the church using Aristotle. Well, guess what the Germans are guilty of doing? The same thing. They then incorporate Aristotelian metaphysics and logic in their discussion of Scripture, and they didn't learn anything from their history because it's part of Thomas Aquinas' reliance on Aristotle that created the need for a reformation right so they're coming straight out of the reformation less than a century before and they've fallen straight back into the same traps right 
Right? Protestant scholasticism leaves two legacies, rigid confessionalism. Rigid confessionalism means these are what we confess, boom, there's no, no movement. You either live by the sword or you live by our word or you die by it, and that's it. But it also does something else. It brings into the discussion scriptural inspiration. That's something that hadn't been talked of before. Luther never discusses the nature of inspiration. For him, Christ Jesus is the Word of God, capital W. And the Bible is the Word of God, capital W, because it leads to Christ. That's Luther. But Protestant scholastics argued that the Spirit told the prophets and the apostles what to write. That's exactly what Timothy says. Or, excuse me, Paul says to Timothy, it's living, it's breathing, it's inspired. Basically, though, what they believed was this, that these men were secretaries of the Holy Spirit, that they spoke into his ear, and the prophets knew. They just wrote down what the Holy Spirit was telling them. Right? And then in the midst of that, because everything is different in the way that's it's written, Paul, the letters of Paul are different than the uh, Gospel of John or Matthew or Mark or Luke, right? you begin to see their personalities come out in their writings. Uh, this will lead to the inerrancy debates of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and even we, we do it now. We call it the Chicago Confession. Uh, R.C. Sproul was a huge writer of the, of the uh, Chicago Confession, and uh, the inerrancy debates and the, in, the inspiration debates still go on. Right? But Protestant scholasticism out of Germany, cold, right? harsh, and then confessionalism, or excuse me, uh, inspiration of scriptures. Let's look at the Catholics. Catholic Orthodoxy, 17th, 18th century, his reaction only to the Council of Trent, right, from 1545 to 1563. Centralization of papal power and the rejection of Protestantism, right? But in the rejection of Protestantism, they're having a problem with the primacy of grace, Right? So papal power and the primacy of grace out of Augustine and out of Paul. Opposition to papal power comes in multiple forms. Uh, we've looked at the rise of nationalism and absolute monarchs, right? Kings and queens are finally saying to the Pope, you have no jurisdiction here, so stay out. France is the biggest one to do that. Okay? Uh, but the, there are four main ones that develop. I'm just going to read them to you because they have some really cool names to them. Don't worry about remembering them all. all right? The first one is called Gallicanism, G-A-L-L-I-C-A-N-I-S-M. Gallicanism comes from the name of Gaul, G-A-U-L, which is the ancient name for France. So guess where it was located? France. All right? All right? It's where this attitude grew the strongest, and it culminates in the French Revolution, because the church is the second estate in French politics of the estates general. Right? The second one, and this one really isn't a, a movement, is it opposed to the Gallicanisms, uh, to the Gallicanists, there's the Ultramontanes, U-L-T-R-A-M-O-N-T-A-N-E-S. Ultramontanes, M-O-N-T-A-N-E-S. Ultramontanes means beyond the mountains. And they supported papal authority, those mountains being 
the Alps. So you're in ultramontane because of, to get to Rome, you have to cross open over the Alps. Okay? No big deal. Anybody that supported Papal Power, ultramontanes. The next three have really awesome names. The, sec the first one of those three is called Fabronianism. Don't worry about the spelling. Right? Fabronianism is from a pseudonym, pseudonym of an author who wrote a book called The State of the Church and the Legitimate Power of the Roman Pontiff. Right? Basically what he says is that the church isn't the pope. The church is the community of the faithful. And we would all go, no joke. Right? Where have you guys been for the last thousand years? Right? Okay. Bishops, as representatives of the church, are to rule, meaning they rule the life of the church. Therefore, final authority doesn't reside in the pope, but in the bishops. Right? So that's Fabronianism. Next one is Josephism. It's named after Joseph II, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, and the Emperor of Austria. He lived from 1741 to 1790. But anyway, Josephism... He needs the support of the church, but he sees Trent, the Council of Trent, as intolerant and obscure. So what does Joseph do? He takes over the education of the priests. He closed monasteries he considered too traditional, and then he founds new churches. That's what he does. He just says, I'm the Holy Roman Emperor. I'm the king of Austria. I'll do what I want. So he does. But they call it Joseph, Josephism because he stands in contrast to the authority of the Pope. Last but not least, least, the Jesuits. Now, we've talked about the Jesuits before, the Society of Jesus, right, founded by uh, Ignatius Loyola. Um, it's dissolved in 1773 by Clement XIV, Pope. The Jesuits are dissolved because they don't uh, make an oath to Jesus, they make an oath to the Pope. All right, so they're dissolved for a while. Long story short, they make a comeback. All right, we have Jesuits today. All right, I had the privilege of studying over Father John Davis, or uh, excuse me, Father John Paris, and then uh, Father Vincenny uh, while studying at Boston College uh, for one of my degrees. All right, very godly men. Uh, Father Vicini is a medical doctor and also a PhD. And then uh, Father uh, Paris is uh, one of the leading Catholic ethicists in the world. And he's a very smart man, and the type of man that we actually need in the church. So if you are bored, read some of his ethical writings, and they are phenomenal. The Catholic ethics are fantastic. And as Protestants, we can learn a lot from them. So don't discount your brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, please. Right. But anyway, okay, doctrines of the primacy of grace. That was the authority of the Pope, primacy of grace. Two movements arise that argue the primacy of grace. What's the primacy of grace first? Well, it just says that to be saved, you're saved by grace, all right? That's primacy of grace. Right, so the Council of Trent ends, and all of a sudden, all these arguments between the Dominicans and the Jesuits draw, uh, happen about Augustine and his primacy of grace doctrine. All right, they revert to name calling because that's what you do. Right, nothing's decided. The subsequent popes are just like, "Would you knock that stuff off right now? Do not make me turn this car around." You know, that type of that type of stuff. Right? 
Finally, in 1563, this theologian named Michael Baeus proposes ideas like Augustine's, arguing that a sinful will produces zero good. Imagine that. Right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Huh. Right? Pius V, who's Pope at the time, condemns his writings, right, but withdraws some of his doctrines, uh, Bias withdraws some of his uh, doctrines, but continues to teach them at the University of, of uh, Leuven anyway. He's like, I'll, t- I'll just say that I did, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway, right? What's he going to do? Right? Pius V dies shortly afterwards, so who cares, right? right? Now we jump 80 years into the future, so that's 1560s, now we're in the 1640s. There's this guy named Cornelius Jansenius, right, who has the exact same writings as Baeus. He writes a book and smartly publishes it posthumously, right? So he's dead before he he comes out. So he can't, they're not going to do anything to him, right? Right? His book is called Augustine, and guess who it's about? Augustine, right? So in it, he exposits more of those primacy of grace teachings that Augustine does. Right? And so this, bi- uh, this uh, uh, Jansen guy uh, talks about grace. He talks about predestination as well. And it leads, to, uh, it leads to some more debate within the Catholic Church. Urban VIII calls his writings Calvinistic. Right? Jansen's dead at this time, so who cares? Right? Uh, but it leads to a movement called Jansenism. Jansen, J-A-N-S-E-N-I-S-N. Jansenism. The names, they're never clever with the names. It's like, oh, we'll just take a person's last name and add istic or ism to the end of it. Right, so Jansenism, as the teachings became known, they were actually not championed by Jansen himself because he was dead, but by another French guy, but some, by some French guy named, uh, what is his name? Oh, yeah, Jean Duvergier, and I just butchered Duvergier's name, but I don't speak French, so I don't care. Right, but he was a friend. He was a friend of Jansen, right? Uh, but in France, it doesn't really lead to the way that Jansen wants it to lead. It leads to this very zealous religious reform uh, and strict religious discipline. So it doesn't have anything to do with grace. It just has everything to do with how you act. Right? There's there's no like heart change. It's all like, oh well, I want to be a better Christian, so I have to discipline everything that I do. Right? So it's very legalistic. Uh, the most famous of the Jansenists was a guy named Blaise Pascal. Who's Blaise Pascal? Pascal's wager? Yeah. Well, who else? What else did he do? He was a physicist. He was also a mathematician. He uh, dealt a lot with uh, fluid dynamics. Uh, the idea of capillary motion uh, meaning that, you know, you stick a straw in a glass of water, and what happens to that water? It goes up the straw, right? So hydraulic pressure, Pascal dealt, dealt a lot with uh, hydraulic pressure, right? He also, a lot like Descartes, wrote his testimony in his uh, jacket, and so he'd go around and preach the gospel to people when they were listening, right? So that's kind of cool. Uh, but anyway, so he's the most famous Jansenist. Um, at this time, Louis XIV is king of France. Uh, he doesn't want too much zeal in his kingdom, and he condemns the movement, and he even asks the pope, who's Alexander III, for help at this time. 
finally, in 1713, Clement IX, who's now Pope, condemns Jansenism. Uh, the movement cont had continued to exist, uh, but had morphed more into a political and intellectual, intellectual movement, uh, and eventually it just disappears because it no longer has any centralized beliefs. So it, it flames up and then it goes away. Okay? And then while in France, while that's going on in France, in Spain, another movement grows up called Quietism. Right? It's a contemplative movement. comes by Miguel de Molinos. Um, this one's weird. Just listen to this. This was, Don't write anything down. This one's just totally weird. Molinos is very controversial. Some of them see as a saint. Others see him as a freaking charlatan. I mean, this guy is, is heretical beyond all belief. Right? He advocates total passivity before God, meaning you just sit there and contemplate your belly button. And the more you sit and contemplate your belly button, you are lost in God. It's basically a form of Spanish mysticism. So contemplation is purely spiritual, at the loss of the physical. So much so at the loss of the physical that they begin to deny the physicality of Christ. Raise your hand if you think that's a problem. Why isn't everybody's hand raised? There we go. Okay. Needless to say, Molinos is dragged before the Spanish Inquisition where he's found not guilty. I know. But in good Spanish Inquisition form, they imprison him for the rest of his life, and 11 years later he dies. Right? Okay. But it spreads to France where it devolves even further its advocates claim that sometimes in order to offer God a true sacrifice, one must commit sins one truly despises so that your confession is true and contrite. But once again, Louis XIII jumps in, or excuse me, Louis XIV jumps in, uh, but quietism in France had run its course and the idea just basically fades away. Right? So... A little bit of Catholic mysticism that grows up out of the, out of the Council of Trent. Doesn't, doesn't really do anything about the primacy of grace. The Catholics don't really look at the primacy of grace again until Vatican II. It's in the 60s, 1960s. Right? So it's, an, it's another three to 400 years before they even address that problem. Okay, right? that's the Catholics. The Reformed. Oh, here's the fun one, because we're going to talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism. So buckle up. Here we go. Right? The 1600s, the 17th century, sees the Reformed tradition set in stone what it eventually calls its orthodoxy. So what Reformed, what Reformed tradition believes today, they set back 400 years ago. Right? Nothing basically has changed. And they do so at two assemblies, the Synod of Dort and the Westminster Assembly. Let's look at the Synod of Dort. This one's the fun one, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Okay, Arminius named after Jacob Arminius. He's a Dutch pastor and a professor in Amsterdam. He studied under Theodore Beza in Geneva, who was Calvin's successor. So his theological training and beliefs were, up to that point, strictly and thoroughly Calvinistic. When he gets back home to Amsterdam, he's asked to refute the opinions 
of a guy named Dirk Kornhart, another Dutch theologian, and Kornhart rejects Calvin's doctrine of predestination. And while Arminius is studying scripture, early church, theology, and other reformers, Arminius comes to the conclusion that Kornhart is correct and that Calvin is wrong on predestination. But once Arminius's opinions become public, his colleague, Francis Gomerus, G-O-M-A-R-U-S, Francis Gomerus, who's also a, uh, who's a colleague of Arminius, uh, and a firm believer in predestination in its strictest sense, challenges Arminius. What? Now, the issue with predestination isn't that it exists. Both Arminius and Gomerus believe that it does. So it's, it's more of in kind. How does it exist? What does it look like? It's quality of existence. For Arminius, predestination is God's foreknowledge of those who would later have faith in Christ. So God knows who will have faith in him. That's Arminius. So predestination was the decree by which God determined that Christ would be the mediator and redeemer of man. That's God's sovereign decree, according to Arminius. His sovereign decree is this, that Christ will be the redeemer of mankind. Okay? That's his sovereign decree. Arminius then says, oh, on top of that, there's a divine decree. So a sovereign decree and a divine decree. The divine decree of final destination, meaning whether you end up in heaven or hell, of each individual was based not on God's sovereign will, but on divine foreknowledge in that God knew what each person's response would be to the offer of salvation in Christ. So the divine sovereign decree is that Christ is your redeemer and the mediator of man. God's divine decree is that God knows who will be saved. Does that make sense? Okay. This is the most theology we're going to get into. Gomerus, faith itself is a result of predestination. That's what Gomerus says. Faith itself is a result of predestination. Before the foundation of the world, the sovereign will of God decreed who and who would not have faith. So for Gomerus, both the sovereign will and the divine will are one and the same. You cannot remove, you cannot untwine them. They are strands to the exact same rope. Okay? And his followers are called Gomerists. So honestly, the debate between Arminius and Calvin wasn't between Arminius and Calvin, because Calvin's dead. It's between Arminius and Gomer, us. Right? So it should be called the Arminius and Gomerus debate. Arminius says, the sovereign decree is that Christ would be the mediator and redeemer of man. The divine decree is that God knew who would be saved from the very beginning. Gomerus says, those are one and the same. The sovereign decree and the divine decree, God knows because faith is a product of death predestination. God automatically gave you the faith from time began. Okay? That's the Calvinist-Arminius debate. Right. 
It's a very complex theological issue. By the way, we are not going to solve it in the next 20 minutes. All right? One of these days it will be because we will be standing before the person of Christ himself and things like that will not matter. All right? Just between you and me, Calvin's right. <laughs> and I will tell you this, why? Arminius depends too much on unfallen human will. That's his, phys, that's his, psych, that's his uh, philosophical background, is that Arminius, when you read his writings, he comes to the point that human will is unfallen. He's Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, and Augustine blows Pelagius out of the water. Right? Luther blows Pelagius out of the water with the bondage of the will. He blows Erasmus out of the water. Right? Calvin writes a few pages on predestination. At the end goes, it's a mystery, because that's what Paul said. Right? And all of a sudden, it's Calvinist's fault. Right? Right? Waters knows what I'm talking about. He's laughing back there. Right? Okay? Calvin's biggest chapter in his institutes is on prayer. Please remember that. It's his biggest chapter ever. It's about 200 pages long. Right? Tells you more, tells you more about what he thought about predestination than prayer. Right, prayer than predestination, I should say. But anyway, here we go. To add to this complex theological debate, you then begin to get into politics and economic issues. Uh, those who tended to be Calvinists were of the lower classes, and they were full of patriotic fever. Uh, Holland at this time belongs to the Habsburg Empire, which is Spain, and they're trying to get rid of Spain. So they're wanting their independence, right? Those who are against... The Calvinists uh, tend to be the growing merchant class, uh, mainly because they felt like somehow Calvin was holding back their economic well-being, and they never came up with a really good reason for that. They're just like, this debate is causing too many problems internally, and we can't make money hand over fist like we're doing. All right? Okay? So Arminius dies in 1609. In 1610, the Arminians publish five articles called the Remonstrance, R-E-M-O-N-S-T-R-A-N-C-E, Remonstrance. They are then called the Remonstrance, N-T-S, as the name of the party. The five articles are, number one, predestination is defined ambiguously. Right? I'm not going to get into all of it. Right? Number two, Christ dies for all mankind, though only believers benefit from his death. Article number three, it argues against the accusation of Pelagianism. Right? Number four, rejects August Augustine's argument that grace is irresistible. That's a big one. Okay. Number five, they need further biblical proof to commit to point of whether or not a believer can fall from grace. So they just kind of give up on the fifth point. So while all this is going on, Prince Maurice of Nassau, who is William of Orange's son, who is William of Orange again? William the third of England. England. His wife is Mary the second. Okay? That's the bloodless revolution. Right? The son and heir of William of Orange takes sides with the Calvinists and the Dutch Estates General, which is their political system, 
calls a great ecclesiastical assembly at Dort. And they meet from November 1618 to May of 1619. And they come up with five points. Right? Everybody thinks the Calvinists came up with five points first. Nope. It's the Arminians. Right? Right? They had their five articles. But they come up with five points. Right? By the way, representatives are called from all over Europe, not just Holland. And they also say, hey, before we do anything else, can we get a new translation in Dutch of the Bible? And they're like, good. Okay? So they do that too. Right? They then condemn Arminianism. All right? This is both a political and theological move, by the way. And in response to the five articles of remonstrance, they create their own five articles of Calvinism. The first one is unconditional election. The first one, unconditional election. It's not on a person's response, but on God's inscrutable will. So it's based on God's will, not on your decision. Second is a limited atonement. Christ died for the elect. Now, you're thinking, wow, that's like frozen chosen type language, and it's not. What they basically say are this. Limited atonement says this. God's atonement is limited because it does what it says it's going to do. And what does God's atonement do? It atones. For what? Our sin. That's limited atonement. You have to weave through all of the 17th century language, right, to find one sentence where you're just like, why couldn't you guys just say that plain as day? Right? But they have to go through all the arguments. Limited atonement says that God's atonement does what it's supposed to do and nothing else. Therefore, it limits itself to its activity, and that is the atonement of sin. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Number three, though a vestige of natural light still remains in humans, that vestige, vest, uh, that vestige of natural light is so corrupted that it cannot be properly used, meaning you're fallen. And you can't use it because of your fallen will. You're fallen and you can't get up. Yes, that is correct. Right. Good. That's a good one. You are fallen spiritually and you cannot get up. All right? 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 Fourth, irresistible grace. Grace is irresistible. Once God, gives, once God is presented to you, there's no way you're going to reject it. Fifth is the perseverance of the saints. Saints, the elect cannot fall from grace. This doesn't mean that the elect are incapable of sin because after justification, we do sin. And the Calvinists would say amen to that. Right? But that God's work in them continually brings them to repentance. It is God's work, not your own. That's the perseverance of the saints. And so out of this, we develop tulip. T-U-L-I-P. Why? Because every good theological school needs to have some sort of acronym. Why the tulip? What's the national flower of Holland but the? Mm-hmm. Right. It's the national sign and the national flower. T, tulip, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, 
Grace is irresistible. P, perseverance of the saints. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. Tulip. Okay? But the consequences of the Synod of Dort are that Arminian pastors are removed from their pulpits or forced to leave the country. Some are condemned to imprisonment. Some are executed. So basically, what do they do? They persecute Christians. Christians are persecuting Christians. Right? Finally, when Maurice, Prince Maurice dies in 1625, the persecution subsides, and in 1631, the Arminians are granted tolerance. So basically, six more years after his death, and then in 1631, they're granted tolerance. Okay? Alrighty. Now, while all that's going on, in England, you have the Westminster Confession, or the Westminster Assembly. I'm going to briefly go over the Westminster Assembly. Right? Here's the Westminster Assembly. Within the Church of England, because of the Puritan movement, you're going to get a group of men, and there's a large group of them, there's like 50 or 60 of them, that come together and say, what the Calvinistic and Reformed movements within the Church of England need are a, is a confession. And what they're going to do with this confession is that they're going to break away from the Church of England and create, basically, the Reformed Church of England. Right? There's the Church of England, the Anglicans, and then the Reformed Church of England. And out of that Reformed Church, you're also going to get more Baptist movements. Right? So what they do is they sit down, and in good Calvinistic fashion, they write a confession. And the confession is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. created in the 1620s. It actually takes them 10 years to develop all of it. And it's a series of questions and answers of what the faith is. Uh, 1620s to 1630. It takes them a long time to sit through and and go through all of it. Uh, Anybody in here read the Westminster Confession of Faith? If not, you should. I also recommend the Heidelberg Confession, which is written about the same time in, uh, in Heidelberg, Germany. Right? But basically what the Westminster Confession of Faith does is it creates a more powerful, a more long-winded, if you will, uh, confession, and it's going to supersede the Scots Confession of the 1550s. So now the Westminster Confession of Faith is what dominates the Reformed churches in the English language it still dominates the Reformed movement in the English language. Okay? That's the Reformed theology. So out of it, you get the Calvinist and Arminius debate, debate, and then you get the development of the Westminster Catechism, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, as its full name is called. Okay? Right? It is not, I would not, no, it's, it's like this thick. Yeah, yeah. It's a good one to have, though, because it's question and answer. Like, the first question is, what's the, what's the duty of man? Right? Well, the short answer is, the duty of man is the praise of God. Right? And then they go, well, who's God? And then they, you know, there's So what they do is short questions, fairly short answers that you can actually work through as a family. The Heidelberg Confession is actually a more beautifully written confession. It's only 25 points, uh, and it's 
par paragraph size. It's beautiful. Um, so I recommend Heidelberg, H-E-I-D-E-L-B-E-R-G, H-E-I-D-E-L-B-E-R-G, Heidelberg Confession. Okay. Named out of Heidelberg, Germany. We're not going to get to the Wesleys tonight, but I'd like to, before anything, before we close here in five minutes, I'm going to get to at least the beginning of the spiritualists. We're going to look at Jacob Bohm. Okay? We wouldn't have gotten to the uh, Wesleys tonight anyway. I'm just going to throw that out there because there are 10 pages of notes up here and not enough time. So, <laughs> I owe Dara $5. So. <laughs> Meanwhile, all this is going on. So you've got the rationalist movement, right? You've got the orthodoxy movement, right? You also have the spiritualist movement. All these are going on at the exact same time in history. That's the 17th and the 18th centuries, right? So the debates among rationalism and orthodoxy lead some people to seek refuge not in reason or cold academic theology, but a pure, they, they seek refuge in a pure spiritual religion and attracts the cultured, the high and lofty, and the low. So people with high education and even those with no formal education at all. And it's very difficult to narrow down the spiritualist movement because like the Puritans, there's so many movements in there that you're just, they're all going to have different belief systems. So we're going to look at three uh, but just one for tonight. The first one is Jacob Bohm. Here he is. Jacob Bohm lay, lived from 1575 to 1624. He's born in the German region of Silesia, and he's born to staunch Lutheran parents. He got bored as a young man with the sermons of their time because they were long dissertations regarding the recent or the most recent or most latest Theological debates, that was really bad grammar. I apologize. <clears throat> that was the latest theological debates. At 14, his father uh, hands him over to be a cobbler's apprentice. What's a cobbler? Shoemaker, right? Cobblestones, cobblers, same root word, right? Okay, Because you walk on them. Okay. Uh, but he's thrown out of his cobbler's apprentice uh, because he begins having visions. His m master said, I'm a cobbler, not a prophet. Right, so he throws him out. So he travels around being a not very good cobbler uh, for a while. Uh, and he comes to the conclusion that the leadership of the church was more interested in theological debates than actual spirituality. And he decides to cultivate his own inner life uh, and he confirms his conclusions and visions and other spiritual experiences. Uh, what is one thing I have not mentioned about what he's doing? So he's just walking around. He's contemplating. He's having visions, and he's writing them down. What's he not reading? Scripture. Very good. Right, this is all on him. Okay. Right. He finally settles in the town of Gerlitz in about 1601 or 1602. And he sets up a cobbler shop. By this time, he's a lot better cobbler than he used to be. And he makes a pretty decent living for himself. Right. And it's during this time 
that Bohm believes that God tells him to write down his visions. The book that he writes, it's unpublished, the book that he writes is entitled The Brilliant Dawn. Sometimes you'll see it called just Aurora, but the more general or literal translation in the German is The Brilliant Dawn. There, Bohm tells the reader that what is written was word for word what God told the author to write, and it's basically a bunch of gibberish. Uh, we'll get to what he writes down here in a second. All right? Somehow a manuscript copy of it gets to the local pastor, and he's dragged before the magistrates, and under the threat of deportation, Bohm promises not to write any more of matters of religion. Any more means for the rest of his life. However, that just lasts for about five years, and then in 1618, he begins to write new visions, and a follower of his publishes, without his permission, three of his books, and Bohm is once again dragged in front of the magistrates, and he's accused of heresy. The first time, he was like, don't do it again. The second time, it's, you're a heretic. The court of Saxony, where Gerlitz is located, Gerlitz is located in the Principality of Saxony. The court of Saxony gets word of these writings, and it has theologians examine what Bohm is talking about. And they look at his writings, and they can't make heads or tails of it. They're like, what is this guy rambling on about? Because Bohm's writings are subject to various interpretations, because they include things like traditional Christian themes, but then they include things like alchemy. What's alchemy? It's the forerunner of chemistry. What were they trying to do in alchemy? Turn lead and other base elements into gold. Okay. Not only does it include things like Christian themes and alchemy, it gets into magic. It gets into the occult. And then it gets into something called theosophy. Now, theosophy is a big fancy word. It just means mystical insight. It means God wisdom, theosophy, theosophy. He's given a chance to explain his writings, but he never gets to. Because while at court, he becomes ill with some sort of upper respiratory ailment. And because they don't have proper medicine, he goes back to Gerlitz, where he says he wants to die among friends, and he does so in November of 1625. Yeah, yeah. It's probably more like pneumonia or bronchitis, but yeah, yeah. Right. So that's Jacob Bohm. Weird, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So what are we missing in Jacob Bohm? Well, we're missing any type of authority. What's his authority? Who's his authority? The self. He's very subjective. Right? That's something that you're going to see come out of Protestantism. That's part of the pro- I'm going to say this. It's part of the problem of Protestantism. There is no, there's no single authority like there is in the Catholic Church. Right? While most good Protestants will say, well, you know, it's sola scriptura, sola gratia, you know, all the five solas, five or six solas. Right? That's great. Right? But there's no one to step up to somebody and be like, you're totally in the wrong there, Mr. Bohm. What's your problem? And when they do, they don't do it lovingly. What are they doing? Like, we're going to exile you. 
or you're going to be condemned of heresy. And what do they do with heretics? Everybody's favorite thing, burn them at the stake. Right? So that's, that's your authority. Your authority is still magistrates. Right? Because where, where do they take Jacob? They don't take Jacob to a pastor and be like, hey, let's talk through all this stuff. What are you talking about? What's going on? They say, well, we're going to take you to the local government. That's what the pastor did. The pastor of Gerlitz took him to local government. So this guy's a whack job and a heretic. So what do they do? They go from the local government of Gerlitz to the principality of Saxony so that the prince of Saxony can, or the elector of Saxony can hear this. And then he has theologians look at it, and the theologians are like, mm. But there's no, there's no overall authority. The authority that, de- that he devolves out of Protestantism in some ways becomes the self. And we're going to see a lot of that in, in the rest of the spiritualists. When we look at George Fox and the Quakers next week, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, how do these people still exist? Right? How many of you went to Friends University? It's where my parents met. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Friends University. <laughs> you know? That's the only thing that came out of the Quakers. You're looking at it. Right? Right? Oh, well. Zach loves Rich Mullins. Yeah. Yeah. Right? (laughs) It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Yeah. Right? Faith without works, babe, it just ain't happening. One is your left hand, one is your right. It'll take two strong arms mm-hmm, to hold on tight. Right? Nobody? Yeah? You, some people's face, thank you. Right? There you go. There you go. Right? Right? But really it is. It's just James. It's just James, but dumb in music. Faith without works is as useful as a green door in a submarine. Right? So, yeah, right? So, yeah. Okay, any questions about tonight? I wish I had another hour to finish this up. But go ahead, Anna. It's a product of their time. <laughs> I don't know. What to... Yeah, they're they're one. You, you, they're one and the same. Exactly. Straight to the political body. If you don't conform, if you don't conform to the society, what happens to society? 
it breaks down. And so what you do is you squelch immediately. You nip it in the bud immediately. Any type of thing that is seen as dissension, anything that is seen as a negative influence on the already prescribed norms of society. So what do you do? You, you kill them. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't write down any type of steps. Neither did Calvin. Uh, Zwingli died in battle, so he didn't get that far. Uh, basically, he, they later saw the damage that that actually does to the gospel. Right? Because they, you have to remember, they're still men, and, and we're going to be judged the exact same way. We're going to be judged as men and women of our time. So the things that we say and the things that we do now, right? not to quote, gladiator but echo through all of eternity right okay right they echo through the eternity of history right so uh so what's going to happen is that we'll be we'll be judged by later generations like god man what were they thinking well we did the best that we could so so did they right but you can't you can't change the fact that while men and women make culture culture actually makes the men and women that it makes so it's 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 like a wall, right? You build up the culture, you build up this wall, and you press against it. But what does physics tell me? Physics also tells me that it's pressing against me as well. So that culture is going to press against them. And it's not until you're later in, later in life where the wisdom finally builds up, and you're like, that was dumb. Why did I do that? Right? And so Calvin and Luther come to those conclusions, but they never write down, oh, I sh-, you know, this is the best way to handle it. They just say, oh, I've got other... I've got, yeah, whoopsies, and I've got other fish to fry at this point. You know, I'm near death, and there's nothing I can really do about it at this point. Yeah, yeah. Other questions, comments, concerns? Okay. Orthodoxy sounds kind of cold, and it is. Catholic orthodoxy gets really weird with their mysticism. Uh, Calvin and Arminians debate, which is actually Gomerus and Arminius. That's kind of weird. Uh, sure. Uh, I would. Uh, you see within, see within, within Protestantism, when, when they don't like something, you, you create a new denomination. That's why we've got like a bazillion Protestant denominations. Right? Even some that are non-denominational. That's a load of garbage. Right? Or non-confessional. That's a load of garbage because every church has a confession. It may be written down, it may not be. The Catholics, what they do is they create a new mystic or they create a new order. So the Jesuits come out of their reform, out of their reformation, right? So they, they go in different, they don't, they don't, there's not like, you know, the Catholic Church of Southern America, you know, or like there's no Southern Roman Catholic Church. Like 
like the Southern Baptists, right, or the Northern Baptists. They don't split over slavery, right? There's just one church, but then you have multiple people that you can follow, the Dominicans, the uh, Franciscans, the Jesuits, the Carmelites, right? So they, they, take their, they take their differences and their splits, and they're saying, we're still going to remain Catholic, we're still going to remain under the authority of the Pope, I'm just going to do it differently by joining a, an order. Um, most, most Catholics nowadays, especially in the United States, would probably just be, you know, I'm just going to believe what the church believes. Right? They don't really follow, they may follow the Pope. I know a lot of people are like JP2 all the way, even though he's been dead for 15 years now. Uh, so I recommend reading JP2. He, he's awesome. But, uh, but yeah, so, does that answer that? Right, I mean, there's no, there's no, I mean, you don't have denominations when you, Catholic Church, they just, since they have that authority structure, that hierarchy, and the same thing in the, the Orthodox Church, they don't have denominations, you know, I mean, they do have Coptics, and, and, but they don't find the fight, they don't find the same types of fights that we do, exactly. To be honest, the Orthodox Church is kind of boring. That's just my historical opinion. It is. It's very gorgeous, right? They're very centered on the Holy Spirit, but that's about all they do is they sit and sit on the Holy Spirit all day long. So, yeah. Anything else? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the men and women that we have